You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another extremely tardy episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, we're in kind of a an unusual position for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. Uh, we're recording on Friday, which is about four or five days later than we normally do, owing to your recent extended stay in Las Vegas uh, for business. And as a result of that, I think we're going to do kind of an unusual show. Um, Free for all? Yeah, you might call it a, a free-for-all, a brawl-for-all, as they used to call it back in the WWE days when they briefly decided it would be a good idea to let pro wrestlers fight for real in the in the big ring. I remember that. Uh, more on that later, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, since we're recording this show at an unusual time on an unusual day, uh, we're just going to do sort of a free-for-all. We've missed so much news in the 10 days or so that we've been off uh, that we, we know the hot-button topics that everybody wants us to discuss. Uh, I've picked out a couple of listener mail questions that we got. Uh, just in case we need them, I don't know if we will or not. Um, and uh, we're we're just gonna we're just gonna kind of go for it for our normal time slot. See how far we get. Just a damn feeding frenzy, really. I like it. I guess first question is uh, long time in Vegas, man. Too long. It seems like you were there for like how almost a week, right? I felt like three years. Well, yeah, that's like people normally go to Vegas for forty eight hours and they jet out as soon as they start to have dreams with the sounds of the slot machines in yeah. their brain. Like you wake up hearing. Right? In your mind, like when you lay down to go to sleep at night. Yeah, no. uh, As a friend of mine put it, the ideal Vegas time frame is Friday to Sunday. And that's Friday night to Sunday morning. Uh, And I was there. I I should have been there one day longer, in fact. I was supposed to leave on last Friday. And then they canceled my flight just without any explanation two hours before. So that actually kind of worked out better for me. Because I was in a situation where, you know, I don't want to check a bag. So I cram everything I can into a carry-on. And you get to a point when... The carry-on cannot sustain you past like four or you know four and a half days of good clean clothes. So I actually had to buy like a T-shirt in what? Vegas just wow. so I had something clean to wear on the plane home. Don't worry, I went to the Marshalls. That's in the basement uh, by the MGM Grand. So I came, I came out came out ahead. I think really, um, yeah, it was too long in Vegas. Can and you- uh, but you know, as I know, you'll be very interested to hear. Uh, went around and searched of, of some hashtag lifestyle pieces to a few different gyms. Some interesting stuff always happening in Vegas down there in the the MMA training scene. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think I have some stuff that you'll look forward to reading and then pretending that you didn't read later on. I was going to ask you, you anticipated my next question. If you could tell us anything that you were working on down. No. There. Oh, it's all secret secret, top secret hashtag lifestyle pieces. What am I, I'm sure I'm going to give away my stuff before I sit down and write it. Come on, man. Come on. All right. Well, let's let's get started. Uh, I guess the first thing we're going to talk about this week is the UFC's new exclusive apparel deal with Reebok, uh, which was actually announced so long ago that it feels like it's been years now. It feels like they announced this the day after uh, Mark Coleman fought Don Fry in the main event of UFC 10. <laughs> yeah, no, they they did us with they got us with the old uh, you know wait till the CME records on Monday hit us with big news on Tuesday right and they, then they then, write by the MMA media playbook basically right and then we were off on Monday so we haven't got to it in a while uh, I mean I guess we should just start by saying this that it kind of seems like it's still too early to tell whether or not the Reebok 
sponsorship of the UFC is going to positively or negatively infect, uh, affect the bottom line of fighters. So I think we kind of need to, to keep an open mind until the thing actually, uh, kicks in, I guess in July sure. of, of next year. Um, but there are some things we can tell. Yeah. Right? There, there are some things that we can talk about. And, uh, I guess the place that I want to start is, well, first of all, if it turns out to have a positive impact on the bottom line of fighters and they wind up with more money in their pocket. Awesome. I'm all for that. I think we can all agree that any scenario that, uh, results in fighters having more money is a good one. Um, but let's just start with the announcement, the joint, uh, uh, press conference between the UFC and, and the, uh, Reebok. One of the things, Ben, that always strikes me about the UFC and, and, you know, we got some, there were some people online kind of saying, why does, why do people always cr- criticize the UFC, whatever they do? Like this, this announcement has the potential to be really positive for fighters. Like, like, why, why sit back and criticize it? And I, my initial response to that is that, it seems like this company can't do a normal announcement. It seems like it's just beyond the pale for the UFC to have a press conference, tell us it's doing something, and then give us all the information that we would need to know whether or how we should feel about it. You know what I mean? Like, it's always a little bit weird. Yeah. It's, there's, it's always super vague. There's always They always say conflicting things during the press conference, and they always somehow leave us with the impression that, like, they're something's they're not telling us some stuff here. Yeah, or or sometimes that they're not telling us some stuff because they don't right. totally know. They don't the know themselves, yet. which is part of the issue. I and think. okay, and this is as good a segue as any into talking about the the idea of using the media rankings uh, to determine the, your kind of base sponsor pay from the Reebok deal. And it's that too seems like it could be an idea in flux because you know that's what the initial plan was. Hey, we'll use those UFC media generated rankings and one through five will get this six through 10 will get that 11 through 15 will get this and then everybody else will get you know something much lower than that uh and then you'll get supposedly a a cut of the merchandise sales for your own branded stuff now talking to a lot of people immediately after that that was the big concern especially for managers and everything who kind of look into the future there to see how that was going to work and it should be a concern to use like media generated rankings, like to basically give the media power over how much fighters make. Um, and it's not just the issues that exist with the media rankings themselves, which we've talked about. Like, you know, you look at the panel for that media rankings thing, and there's a lot of sites and stuff that you never heard of, and a lot of questionable ballots being turned in. Plus, the UFC has shown that it will manipulate those rankings. Uh, for you know, political purposes, basically, with fighters using it as a contract negotiation tool, kind of. So all that stuff gives you pause. Um, Dana White said, like, in response to that, that what they were going to do was they wanted to change the media rankings panel and make it a smaller group and a more um, ethical group, basically. But then it seems to me, you make it a smaller group, you give each voting member more influence, more power over the the rankings. It's, it just becomes more problematic, doesn't it? Yeah, it's an, that particular idea is fraught with uh, uh, problems, I think. It almost seems like an impossibility to me to base uh, anyone's pay on rankings, no matter how you, you devise them. I felt like it was always kind of, well, A, a weird thing for MMA media people to do to create content for the UFC for free. Uh, I thought that was a weird thing to do. And it also always seemed like a conflict of interest to me for, uh, MMA media members to vote on, uh, rankings that ultimately fell under the control of the UFC. Uh, and, and to me, it makes it even weirder to think that you would be voting in a poll that would then directly affect the income of the athletes in your sport. That would make me personally really, really uncomfortable. Uh, but, 
if the UFC is really, really intent on doing this and there's nothing that can change their mind and God help them, I think they should change their mind about this. But like if they're really going to base fighter pay on, on rankings, uh, what really needs to happen is there needs to be an independent consensus media ranking system like uh, a bunch of the top MMA writers and websites need to get together and come up with their own ranking system that they control that the UFC doesn't have any say in uh, that that uses their own criteria and is housed on their own website somewhere yeah. that is not under the, the control of the UFC at all uh, and then it, you would I think clear up some of the problems with uh, with using rankings to determine people's pay. Not all of them, but maybe some of them. Uh, but I just don't know if that is a thing that the UFC would do. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when you talk about using like a, a kind of independent media rankings thing, I mean, it seems like we should, and it's been talked about before, but a, an independent just media, um, body in general um i lost the word some right. like a media Consensus. association right. yeah uh, right that, you know th that would be a good idea just in general and also the other thing that i had suggested that they could do if they really want to do it by rankings is like just take our rankings and don't right. ask like every site has them just right. take them bump out whoever you know when there's a bellator guy in there bump them out and bump somebody else up um like and just kind of mash them all together and average them all together for some kind of rankings and don't even ask our permission to do it just kind of do it um but then again you're right it does not get you around to all the problems of using media like rankings at all whether they're media generated or not to, to determine sponsor pay because those kind of measure two different things and that's something i talked to a lot of people in vegas about and uh you know misha tate who i talked to in vegas was she's a good example of somebody like that because you know, out as far as if you're a sponsor looking for somebody to sponsor in the women's 135 pound division in the UFC, uh, you know, Ronda Rousey would obviously be your top choice. Misha Tate, I'd say, would probably be your second choice, just as far as the value she brings to you as a sponsor, like, you know, like Twitter followers and the, the people on social media she can motivate to go do something or buy something or click on something. You know, she's kind of like number two. And if you look at, like, okay, she's going to get the same base pay at everybody in the top five. So it's, like, going to be her, like, an Alexis Davis or whoever. I don't know exactly who's in the media, the UFC's rankings top five right now. But, you know, they're going to get the same money as she does, and they're not bringing the same value to the sponsor. Like, that's not what sponsorship is. Sponsorship is not about how good a fighter you are. Like, it's it's about popularity, which is sometimes related to how good a fighter you are. So, I mean, that in itself is a problem. Here's a quick question from listener Reese Burgess. He writes, is it me or did the news of the Reebok uniform deal make you picture the UFC as a big tough episode with matching uniforms? I personally like the diversity that comes with the fighters choosing their own gear and sponsors. Please discuss. This was a thing that I thought of immediately when they announced this deal, that uh, it would be... Uh, the wrong move and kind of a disservice to the to the individuality of fighters to make them all kind of look the same, you know, especially when you've got 500 people on the roster and you're doing a show every single weekend. It's hard enough for these people to differentiate themselves and, you know, hard enough for to for the UFC to build new stars. I think it, it's kind of counterproductive to like homogenize that even further and to make people look exactly the same. Now, I will say, though, that uh last weekend at UFC 181 and maybe this was kind of lost in our CM Punk hangovers all of us but Johnny Hendricks and uh Anthony Pettis both walked out pretty much in full on Reebok gear uh and I would say I guess to the credit of Reebok they both looked suitably different I thought like yeah. you know Johnny Hendricks I think has his own logo that Reebok used on on his shirts and it looked janky i guess for lack of a better word and then you know pretty tony obviously always looks good and uh his baby blue shirt looked good as hell on him well you know i think reebok has to realize that that's a 
that's a potential problem, right? That you can't just turn out tough uniforms because those tough uniforms aren't selling. Like nobody's like going out and buying those sleeveless jerseys that say like Team Melendez on the back. So they must see that, yeah, there has to be some individuality. But yet, you know, they're not going to take the time to do that for absolutely everybody. It's, you know, Johnny Hendricks and, and Anthony Pettis, that's worth your time as, you know, a design team to sit down with each of them and come up with their own stuff. But that doesn't mean that the people lower down are all going to get that same treatment, obviously. But one of the things, you know, when I was talking to people for, for my story on it and uh, the Dethrone founder was saying that, you know, the it's kind of good news for the brands who want to stay where they can sell stuff to MMA fans even if they can't have their logos and stuff actually in the cage because, you know, if everybody's kind of wearing this Reebok stuff, then it doesn't really mean anything that somebody has Reebok. Like, if he's a Dethrone guy trying to make, you know, some T-shirts for one of the guys he sponsors and then somebody else around the same level as that guy signs a big deal with Reebok, everybody will start talking about it the same way they did when John Jones signed with Nike. Then it becomes something that that brings some attention to it. With everybody doing the same thing, even if they have some differentiation between them, it becomes a little more invisible. And he also, his good point, I think, was that there's a, a laziness and exclusivity that if you don't have to compete with other design teams, that might affect you. It also makes you wonder, though, how much of this stuff do they really plan to sell? like out on the open market. How much of this for Reebok is about getting Reebok's name attached to something like the UFC uh, and kind of getting associated with an MMA brand? And how much of it is, do they really think they're going to sell a ton of that actual individual merchandise? Because that's going to affect the fighters' bottom lines. And we already heard, you know, I think the months between now and when it takes effect, that's when guys are going to be hurting because sponsors are starting to pull out now because, you know, the, the game has an end date in sight for them, right? Like, now, if you're fighting between now and July, man, your paycheck could suffer. And Brendan Shaw talked about that, right? Uh, so that that conversation obviously will be ongoing. A lot of more, a lot more information will come to light. Uh, we're certainly not done talking about it as we get closer to the date and as the Reebok thing kicks in. Uh, clearly, we'll find out more. And if it turns out that it's that it's not a good deal for fighters. They will tell us, uh, whether it be off the record or on the record or whatever, uh, we will find out. Uh, right now, though, I think, Ben, let's move on to the thing that you, I would assume everyone actually wants us to talk about this week. No use dancing around it. Let's just take it on, uh, head on, uh, that, uh, this past weekend, the UFC announced that it had signed a deal with top mixed martial arts free agent, huge pay per view draw, Phil Brooks a.k.a. WWE's CM Punk. Uh, obviously a uh, provocative move, I guess you would say, by the UFC to bring this guy in. Um, and I guess let me start the conversation by saying that, that this obviously has been a controversial thing, but me personally, I'm not really mad at Phil Brooks uh, for wanting to do you're this. You're going to do this? You're, you're not going to say CM Punk? You're going to just do Phil Brooks all the time? No, I'll say CM Punk. Okay. In fact, I think it's... I, would, man, I, think, I was really hoping that that would be your sweet like asshole move. No, you just I, I, in fact, to... I think it's kind of silly and stupid that, that other people are making a kind of a huge issue out of that. Like, are we going to call him CM Punk? Are we going to call him Phil Brooks? I'll call him whatever he wants me to call him since there's a long established history in this sport of us not calling people by their real names, right? We called Kevin Ferguson Kimbo Slice the whole time. That's true, we nev did. never said word one about it. Hennen Barrow is not Hennen Barrow's name, okay? So if we're going to go and do that, like, I don't think it's, it's, uh, I don't think it makes sense for us to make a big deal out of calling a guy CM Punk just because that was his wrestling name. I would henceforth like to be known as Chad Dundas is a pussy. We're not going to. That's my new We're name. We're not going to go with this. Uh, yeah, whatever I want to be called, Chad. 
That's what I want to be called. Yeah, you're different, though. Being an <laughs> asshole, I'm not going to extend you that right. Uh, so I'm not mad at CM Punk that he wants to do this. Uh, he's been around our sport as an observer for a couple of years now, and he's always seemed pretty genuine to me in uh, his passion for the sport and his love of the sport. And he said over and over again for a couple of years now that WWE paid him enough that he would never have to work again if he didn't want to. So I don't think that this is a cash grab or a publicity stunt on his part. I think that he's going to do this because uh, he actually like has a passion for this and an interest in this kind of competition and wants to see how he would fare in it. And I'm also not going to really rag on him because he wants to have a couple of MMA fights for the company that is going to pay him the most. Like that seems to be well within his rights as an individual, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and you know, that's how work works, right? You provide a service and whoever pays you the most for it, you go with them as your employer. Uh, athletically though, I think we need to be realistic about what we're dealing with here. Uh, you have a 36 year old man who's never been involved in a competitive sport, legitimate competitive sport in his life, uh, coming into the top level of this sport and a guy who by his own admission has had a couple of torn up knees, uh, elbow surgery, a couple of concussions, said that he had a staph infection, untreated staph infection for three months around the beginning of this year, doesn't know the weight class he's going to fight in, doesn't know the camp he's going to train with, and we're going to try to toss him out there at the highest level of the sport in like about six months? Yeah. I don't see how that's going to work, man, yeah. honestly. Well, okay, when you say in the highest level of the sport, you mean like on the biggest stage in the sport, but not Yeah, that's actually probably level. an important distinction to yeah. make. And that, I think, is going to tell us a whole hell of a lot. You and I were talking about this, and we talked about it a little bit in the, the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, is the problem you face is who the hell do you get to fight this guy for the first time? Because, you know, you don't want it to be something like completely stupid. Like, you want there to still be some value if you win. Because otherwise, if you look like, hey, we just went out there and we handpicked some sucker for CM Punk to roll over, like, A, that'll make everybody look worse. It won't do him any favors as toward, you know, gaining some legitimacy in the sport. Uh, it'll also make the UFC look like exactly a pro wrestling promoter, like having the one guy who comes out with a fancy entrance where there's sparks flying in the air and a theme song that was specially written for him and, like, you know, people pointing at him, like, so, talking about, into so a megaphone. So basically you're, you're describing the first time that Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture fought. You're just exactly describing that right now. Well, no, except that like when he then comes out to fight, the dude who he fights uh, is you know already standing in the the cage waiting for him in a pair of plain blue trunks, pulling on his knee pads, doing a couple side bends. So again, exactly the situation for when Randy Couture and Chuck yeah, when Randy Couture for first, when those guys nobody knew anybody in this sport. It was fucking <laughs> stupid. I mean, they put Randy Couture up against Vitor Belfort, thinking that Vitor Belfort had no known weaknesses and would smash him. I mean. That that's not a fair comparison. There right. are two different eras of this. Right. But Appearance wise, I'm just saying. Um, like, I, if you have to go out and sign somebody specifically, yeah, for the purposes of fighting for CM, like somebody has to go right. out there. No, the only reason I'm getting a UFC contract right now is because they want me to lose to CM Punk. Right. And like, that is an important ideological shift in the matchmaking philosophy, very much so. as far as I'm concerned, because this is the first. Well, we'll have to see how it plays out. We don't know how they're going to handle his first opponent, but uh, this is the first time that I can recall the UFC signing a guy where the public perception is that they're going to have to go out and look for someone for him to beat. Because right. in the past, they've always taken these guys who were MMA neophytes and wanted to get in the octagon. They've always used those guys as examples, frankly, as like cautionary tales. Remember James Tony, who had far and away more qualifications to be in the UFC than CM Punk ever will. They signed him pretty much for the express purpose of letting Randy Couture beat the shit out of him on pay-per-view. You know, and Kimbo Slice, they brought him in as the surprise entrance on the heavyweight... Uh, 
season of the Ultimate Fighter, Tough Ten, right? And the moment he showed up there, every other fucking MMA fighter in the house was like, I want to fight that guy. Yeah. Well, and remember what a big deal they made out of like, hey, we wouldn't just cite this, sign this guy to fight. We wouldn't just do that because we don't really know. Like, we think he's kind of a joke. So we're going to make him prove himself by coming on. Like, Dana White said it so many times during that season of Ultimate Fighter. Like, hey, I wouldn't just, like, let give this guy a contract. If he wants to be in the UFC, let him prove it. Let him prove he belongs by going through the tough thing. Uh, which, you know, and he lost right away. So I don't know exactly what yeah, he, he proved wa- there. He washed out of the UFC in two fights. Uh, so... But then, you know, and you mentioned, I think, before that they even said the same thing about Kurt Angle. Like, oh, well, if Kurt yeah, Angle wanted to do, uh, wanted to fight in the UFC, he would have to go through uh, the tough thing. He was a goddamn Olympic medalist, man. Like, it, you, you, you know, it seems like there is a changing standard going on, and it's hard not to link that to the UFC's, uh, you know, declining pay-per-view sales. Because that's exactly what this seems like is. And, and Dana White didn't really deny it. You know, he was, I was surprised in his comments uh, I heard the audio of his comments to, to a couple of guys on Press Row right after they announced it at UFC 181, and I was surprised at how little spin he tried to put on it. Uh, it just He kind of seemed like, well, hey, I guess we'll see. And you know, on one level, like you said, I'm not really mad at, at CM Punk, uh, Phil Brooks, whatever whatever you want to call him, uh, right. for, for taking this opportunity and trying to do it. I understand, like, hey, if you wanted to fight, and if you believed in yourself, why wouldn't you go, you know, what do you prove by fighting at, you know, some casino like a river casino on Biloxi Mississippi against some no name you know it doesn't necessarily show us anything you might as well go straight to the big show and let's find out Um, but for the UFC's perspective it does seem like you know let's not they're not even going to pretend that we're not doing this for money like this is just to get you to watch and the reason people will watch is because half the people are going to watch because they like CM Punk and want to see him do well and they remember from pro wrestling and the other half the people are going to watch because they're outraged by this signing and are going to want to see that dude get his ass kicked and get put in his place and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing I also don't know if those people are like if the thinking is that they'll become MMA fans and they'll tune into the next pay-per-view I doubt it yeah uh, we should move on from this in a few minutes but I just want to say that like the idea that CM Punk making having his first UFC fight as a 36-year-old guy with no qualifications uh and frankly a 36-year-old guy with a lot of with a lot of hard years on that body the idea that 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 is the thing that more people would want to watch than actual UFC/MMA fighting makes me feel a little depressed about the sport to yeah. be honest with you okay, like yeah. I, I feel like that speaks poorly of the thing that that we uh, so far devote our professional lives to covering that the biggest draws, the biggest ratings draws, I guess with the exceptions of, of maybe a guy like George St. Pierre, who's as legit as it gets. But like, uh, the fact that the biggest ratings draws always seem to be guys like CM Punk and, and Brock Lesnar, who was obviously very, very talented, but I'm not sure it was fully his MMA talent that drew people to make him a huge draw at first, at least. And like Kimbo Slice and guys like that. Uh, the fact that those guys seem to be like the, the most attractive thing to people to watch really makes me feel weird about the sport. But like, it makes me feel like people don't actually like the sport. They just want to watch the curiosity. Well, but that's when you say the most attractive thing is because we have this like kind of baseline level, right, of the existing MMA fans, the people who like when they hear that Frankie Edgar and Cub Swanson are going to fight are like, oh, hell yes, I'm canceling my plans. Uh, like then we, we're used to that level. 
Like we're used to that level of, of audience, audience interest. Like that's the, the audience that we take for granted. And by we, I also mean the UFC takes for granted that those people are always going to show up because they really do like fighting. And then you got the people who, you know, they like it when like John Jones is fighting. They like it when the, the level's just a little bit higher and the names are a little bit bigger. And so, you know, it raises that level up a little bit on those nights. And then you got the people who don't really like it that much at all. But they know about it. It is kind of a curiosity to them. And so then when something like that happens, they all jump in. And that's when we notice that huge difference between that level and the baseline level. And so it's not that, like, nobody cares. It's just that, you know, in order to get to that that certain point above what your audience normally is, yeah, then it takes this thing that the people who aren't in your normal audience, like, care about. Like, they right. don't care about the, the regular. And that's fine. I mean, like, I don't necessarily think that that's a huge problem. I do... I was wondering, though, when I saw CM Punk on Fox Sports Live talking about his actual experience, right? And he's saying, like, it seems like everything is being dialed back now. And maybe it's just a really savvy move on his part to, like, lower expectations or get people to underestimate him or whatever. But, like, you know, before we heard, well, he's been training for years with the Gracies, you know? Uh, and uh, then, you know, and the WWE built him as a black belt or something at one point. And then they ask him, like... You know, what's, what's your jujitsu experience? Well, I don't even really have a blue belt. Just, like, I train so infrequently. I'm just not there enough for them to give me a blue belt. That kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, how about sparring? Like, oh, you mean like real sparring? Like hard sparring with like, uh, like real professionals? No, I've, I don't really do that. Okay. All right. Um, so what the hell, man? Like, that's the stuff that makes you, I, I, he's a smart enough guy that he must know what he's doing when he's telling us that stuff. And at the same time, that's weird. This yeah. is the goddamn UFC. Right, like, yeah. Could it's... you beat me in a grappling competition, CM Punk? Because if the answer is not absolutely I wouldn't even need to try, then it might not be the place for you. Right. Well, and we talked about this privately, and, and we we I saw some other people actually discussing it after that on Twitter, uh, but I still kind of wanted to bring it up. Like, we're both on the same page in, in assuming that CM Punk would get wrecked by Joe Rogan, right? Like, it, would, <laughs> yes. it, it wouldn't even be, like, yeah. a, a close fight. And if you're signing a guy to go fight on pay-per-view that we all admit would get trucked by one half of your pay-per-view broadcast team, I mean, I think CM Punk would have a good shot to take Mike Goldberg out. What about Anik? Right? Well, Anik is crafty. He's yeah. got that wiry strength. And I bet you Anik would just cheat his ass off. He's, he's, <laughs> he's going Dundasso. He's immediately poking you in the eye, kicking you in, in the groin. And then when during the pause, he's just going to go and run over there and grab the fence just for the hell of it. I mean, if, but if, the point is, if you're signing a guy that we all admit would get beat up by one of the guys who you use as a color commentator on your pay-per-view broadcast, what like what are we even talking about, man? Yeah. All right, well, let's move on from this. From a guy whose MMA career is just starting to a guy whose MMA career could be near its end. I don't know. We're going to have to wait and, and see the personal decision he makes. Uh, but uh, the highly publicized conversation this past week between Joe Rogan and UFC fighter Brendan Schaub, where did this conversation take place? Was this on Rogan's podcast or yes. was it on Brendan Schaub's podcast? I believe it was on Rogan's podcast, um, and then they talked about it again. Or I don't they know. Circle back on I, fighter and the that kid. That was my assumption, but uh, yeah, now that I talk about it, I don't really know. All right. Well, let's assume that it was on Ro Rogan's podcast because it seems like a thing that would happen on his podcast. Just a couple of guys shooting the breeze and it gets uncomfortable. Uh, so Joe, Joe Rogan essentially out of love has Brendan Schaub come on his podcast and tells him he's no good at MMA and he ought to retire. Well, that's, that's a little, that's the Cliff's notes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Okay, let's, first of all, let's talk about the actual substance of Rogan's remarks, which is not that, you know, he's, you're no good at MMA, but that you're, you're not an elite heavyweight. 
you're not going to be an elite heavyweight. You're not going to be able to beat those guys at the very top and much less become champion. And, you know, you kind of found your ceiling. And at this point, the longer you continue, uh, you know, you, you have enough of a name that they're, they're not going to put you in against the, the guys way down there who you could beat. They're probably going to put you in against the guys who are going to knock you out a few more times. I mean, you might win a couple and then get knocked out a couple more times. And we've seen that Rogan, or that, uh, Schaub's chin is, is kind of suspect now. And Rogan kind of trying to make the point, like, look, you found out how far you could get in this sport. Now it's a question of, you know, do you want to just hang on for a couple more years just for a few more paychecks or realizing that you're not going to be champion, that you're going to have to have a different career after fighting? Do you want to move on and start that career now where you're still in relatively good health before taking the chance that something bad happens to you, which could, you know, affect the rest of your life? It's a sound argument. Right. Yeah. I think we can all agree, even though we, I was a little facetious about it to start. Like, it's a, it's a good conversation to have and a yes. conversation that if you are close and, and care for people who are involved in this, uh, sport that takes a lot out of guys' bodies and, and, and off, you know, uh, maybe productive years of their life, it's, it's a conversation you need to have. Do you need to have it on a live podcast? See, there's my question. Like, I don't think, I mean, and I know that it came about, I guess, because Brendan Schaub said he wanted to have the conversation on the air, or he at least, he wanted to appear on the podcast, kind of wanted to do it in public, but, uh, I can't imagine having that conversation with a friend in public. Like, if you know what the content of the conversation is going to be, I personally would insist on having it in private. But that's, I mean, maybe that just says more about my own, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily feelings, but just like my own personal style than, than, than somebody else's. You know, uh, the, the thing Joe Rogan said at some point was, Hey, I'm not just saying this for you. I'm saying this for other guys who are in the same boat and need to consider these same questions. And okay. Then I can see you kind of make a point, right? That like, maybe like, maybe it is important to have this conversation in public because it's a conversation that the, the sport needs to think about. Fans need to think about fighters need to think about, um, and so therefore you could be, you know, helping more people than just Brendan Chaub by, by forcing him to think about this. And maybe you put the pressure on him more by doing it in this fashion. I don't know. I mean, it seemed like from Chaub's comments afterwards, uh, he said that he had said, yeah, let's talk about the fight, but had, had he, at least according to him said that like, yeah, let's keep it really light. Let's not get too negative. And it went in a, a different way. Yeah. Um, that makes me feel a little bit weirder about it. Yeah. But I, you know, who knows? I, I do think that. I think that comes from a good place uh, from Rogan. Oh, know. yeah. No, I'm not trying to say that he was being mean-spirited. It's, I'm just saying that, like, my personal sensibilities are to have that conversation in private. Like, if I thought that you had suffered brain damage, which I do, and <laughs> felt like that you should no longer write stuff in public because you, you were embarrassing yourself, which I do, um, I wouldn't have that conversation with you in, in public, much to the chagrin of our listeners, which is why no one, not as many people will ever listen to our podcast as maybe Joe Rogan's podcast, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I talked to a few different people about this while I was out in Vegas and, you know, had the opportunity to be around a bunch of fighters and say, like, what do you think of this? And a couple of answers that that made me think were one, uh, Mike Pyle talking about, and I think we'll probably run this video probably sometime soon, but he talks about, you know, you assume that the reason fighters are in this is to make a bunch of money uh, so that they can live off at the rest of their lives. And maybe for some people that is it or, or at least, you know, a big part of it. But he was saying, you know, when I started, I was getting like 200 bucks and fighting in a smoky bar room. And I wasn't doing that because I needed the 200 bucks. Uh, I was doing it because I really wanted to do this. Like the doing of it, the, the living of it is the thing, you know, being a martial artist. Uh, and 
to kind of boil it down to just like, this is a poor financial decision for you at this point. Like this is not the best career move kind of takes away that aspect of it as like, yeah, well, this is how I want to live. Like this is how I, I want to be. And it's an essential part of my identity. And I know I can't do it forever, but like, I don't think I've reached the point where I absolutely have to stop. I mean, I think that that there's something to that, that it's easy for us to overlook it because, Hey, we wouldn't do it anyway, man. Like, That's true. you know, yeah. we, so for us, it's like, well, Hey, we think about like how much money it would take to get us to take those risks and then think, well, you're, it's not worth it for you anymore, man. You should stop. And you're not taking into account that like a lot of these dudes really would do it for free, like in some fashion. Uh, and also the idea that, um, you know, fighters, like when we tell them like, Hey man, the risks are, are getting to be pretty great for you. You could go out there and get seriously damaged and that could affect you the rest of your life. And for a lot of those fighters, they're like, yeah, man, I knew that. I knew that from the beginning. Like you think I got into this thinking like, well, I'll do it until it seems unsafe and then I'll stop. I mean, it's, it's unsafe the moment you start and they know that. And I think that sometimes we think we're telling them something that they don't know. And, or maybe we think that we're telling them something that they know intellectually and yet don't totally really believe. And we're trying to get them to believe it. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that is the kind of essential conversation the sport keeps coming back to. What I was really curious about was Rogan's comment about how, you know, the brain trauma stuff worries him to the extent that he doesn't know how much longer he wants to keep calling these fights. Right. Yeah. Which I, I that hit home for me. I wrote a thing about that on Bleacher Report a couple of months ago. Just the more that we find out about brain trauma and the extent to which this could affect people later. And, and also for me, at least the fact that a lot of the people who get into it are going to come out the back end without any financial security, uh, frankly does make me feel a little bit guilty. And it makes me, and I think that that is something that we all need to reckon with. And I guess I'm just not one of these people that, uh, can just hang it all on personal responsibility and say, well, these guys knew what they were getting into when they started. And therefore, uh, as an observer, I can just kind of wash my hands of it and feel good about, about supporting this, uh, you know, for a lot of different moral reasons. Number one, that, that even when I listen to you relate the story of, of you know, guys who say they they would do this for free and they understand the risks. My response, at least in my mind, whenever I hear that always is, do they really? Like, I know that we pretend that we do, but I don't think that anybody, when you think about yourself, can right. fully uh, foresee the day when, like, you can't turn on the light or get out of bed because it gives you a splitting headache, like the thing that has happened to some uh, you know, former NFL players who don't even remember their wives and like can't function as human beings. Like I feel like a part of our essential humanness maybe is that we can't foresee the day where that happens to us. That's true. And I mean, but I think that's true for a lot of people in a lot of different things. It's like people who smoke and it's like, they can tell you like, yeah, no, I realize, you know, that this might, I might get cancer when I'm old or something. And then, but then who cares anyway? But you know, the, you know, the present you makes choices that future you will have to deal with. Uh, and when future you becomes present you, then you'll just be mad at past you. Uh, like you can't really understand a lot of the, the consequences of the, the choices that you're making. But I think for fighters, the pro the thing that ups that, that, uh, risk level a lot is the mindset that you kind of have to have to be a pro fighter. Like Greg Jackson always likes to say that fighters have to be optimists. Like right. they have to assume the best case scenario for themselves in order to, to keep doing this stuff. Um, and so I think that also leads to like downplaying in your mind the risk to yourself. You understand that the risks for the broad category known as fighters are quite high, but you also think that you are special and a fighter of destiny uh, and are going to be the one who climbs back out of this and all the way to the top of the, the 
rubble heap of humanity, you know, so that leads you to think like, okay, I'm going to be fine. Uh, so I, I do think you're right about that. But it's, to me, it's not just the brain trauma that is the, like, if you talk about concerns, it's like, like you said, that it's not just brain trauma that they suffer that will affect them the rest of their lives. There's a lot of physical stuff, plus just like the sacrifices you have to make in life to, to live this lifestyle and to be a pro fighter. And then to come out at the end with nobody really looking out for you. There's no pension. There's no health plan. That kind of stuff like other pro sports have. Like that's the stuff that concerns me a little yeah. bit. And, you know, just to circle back for a moment, that's one of the, to me, that's one of the weird things about CM Punk coming to the UFC is that, you know, just a couple weeks ago on Thanksgiving, he recorded a two hour long podcast with his friend Colt Cabana on the Art of Wrestling podcast, which is if you're, if you're a pro wrestling fan is a rad podcast, by the way, to listen to. But like the extent of it pretty much was him worried about his health, like talking about his knees and his elbow and his, his concussions and the staph infection that he got and how he felt like he wasn't treated well by WWE management and he didn't receive proper medical care. To me, it's really weird to think that the guy who had that same conversation like two weeks later would be like, and I'm going to be a professional fighter like, right weird thing to do cm yeah. punk all right but let's move on let's spend a couple minutes talking about uh ufc 181 because we missed that also ben robbie lawler is the ufc welterweight ch champion uh i'm not sure the judges nailed it exactly uh on hendrix versus lawler too but it was a close fight and god damn it i thought it was adorable to see members of the original team militich fallen out in the octagon when Robbie Lawler got the belt wrapped around his waist. I don't think I've ever seen Matt Hughes that excited about anything, including his own wins. Yeah. No, that is, that was, uh, did your heart good to see those guys so happy for Robbie Lawler now, uh, Hughes and Militich and those guys. And then also, like, backstage, and I was there seeing the, the AK or the, uh, the ATT guys who, you know, they had such a great camp for years, but never really had a UFC champion. And now they get one and it's Robbie Lawler and, you know, talking to Ricardo Laborio and Conan Silvera backstage, you know, it was like, like they wanted to cry. Uh, they were so proud of that guy. And they, you know, they were also those same ones saying how, like, they, they believed that Robbie had, you know, he had gotten here sheerly through earning it. Like, he was not talking his way into it the same way a lot of other people did. And I think that made them so much happy for it because it felt like one of the rare moments in this sport where somebody, somebody gets what they deserve and what they've actually worked for and earned. However, the judges scoring on this one, you're right that, that it was a little weird. I think, here's my theory on it. I think that we would not be so up in arms. And I'm not even really one of the up in arms people, but I think right. there would not be such a, a issue over the decision had the one judge not scored it 49-46. If it had been a yeah. split 48-47 all the way and two uh, gave it to Lawler and one gave it to Hendricks, people would be like, well, all right, man, close fight. What are you going to do? That one score made it seem like, well, shit, man, this is just a crapshoot if that guy thought he won four of those rounds. Yeah, uh, and I also am not totally mad about the decision because it was a close fight, and in a weird way, it was a fight where I thought neither guy really uh, gave his best all the time for the full 25 minutes, which is, uh, you know, that's a lot to ask, frankly. That's a long time for guys to be in there fighting, especially when they're fighting rounds 8, 9, and 10 against each other. Uh, but to me, though, just to see the way that it came out, obviously we've had two really close fights now with, with uh, you know, each guy coming out on top once. They're one and one against each other. I think you got to do it a third time, brother. And like we said uh, when the, on the last episode of the show, I feel like we could do a lot worse in the welterweight division than, than to start things off with a Robbie Lawler-Johnny Hendricks uh, trilogy. Yeah, and I don't think anybody's necessarily dying to see – uh, Robbie Lawler and Rory McDonald again. You know, I, I think people are going to say, well, Roy, Roy, it's supposed to be Rory McDonald's shot right now. Yeah, okay. 
I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I'd really be missing too much if he doesn't get that shot right away. Uh, I, you know, one thing I think is interesting about people's attitudes toward the fight is how I think if you go round by round, it is a little tougher to justify the scoring in, in Robbie's favor. But because he was so clearly winning down the stretch, and because it seemed like Johnny Hendricks there, especially in the fifth round, was just kind of playing prevent defense and running the clock out and was just kind of trying, like, using takedown attempts really to kind of stall the action and not really, uh, trying to, to do much. And the, the moment at the end of the fight where Lawler's coming on hard, Hendricks is just trying to survive. They blow the final horn and Hendricks just kind of sulks off, you know, clearly glad to be done with that. Uh, and just looking like he's in search of a comfortable chair to sit down in. And Robbie Lawler is just mad dogging him behind his back, stalking him down <laughs> yes. as if trying to get him to agree to a round six. Yeah. Uh, and you, I mean, obviously Robbie Lawler won that round anyway, so that shouldn't really play too much of a, a part. But I think in people's minds, that's one of the things where they look at that and they think like, well, I can look at that one image and, you, and tell me who won that fight. So what if the math doesn't exactly work out? I still feel okay about it in the end. Even, you know, I feel like you got the right answer, even if, you know, you, you didn't add everything up correctly. And I think that was something I heard both, uh, the, the gyms I was at Monday and Tuesday, both of them ended their practice and then not, you know, not, uh, totally non-standard way for MMA practices to end. But when they ended their conditioning kind of at the end, everybody had to run around in circles with their hands up like you just want to fight. Right. But both coaches made a real, a clear uh, attempt to to explain the importance of that. Like, hey, did you see this fight on Saturday night? You're going to tell me that that didn't matter? Like, go ahead and practice this stuff, the the stuff, the acting like a champion, because that stuff uh, affects judges. Robbie Lawler won a title doing this right now, so you better do it right here in the practice room. That was interesting to see the lessons that they are taking from that. Yeah, I do want to spend five minutes talking about Anthony Pettis, but I'm going to read this email from J.P. Prenovost first, because I think it makes an interesting point. One thing we know from this weekend's Hendricks-Lawler result is that they match up evenly. Add to that the balanced mix add to that balanced mix the emergence of Rory McDonald and a slew of other talented welterweights and take a moment to consider what you have. With that landscape in mind and given George St. Pierre's probably permanent absence as the welterweight division just become the pre-John Jones light heavyweight division, I'm going to say yes. I feel like you could see the belt get passed around an awful lot uh, in the absence of George St. Pierre before uh, a new real dominant welterweight emerges. And I'm not that sure, sure that's a bad thing. I mean, I think that's okay. You know, I think that that was one of the things about GSP, like even though he was super popular and uh, one of the all-time greats, is that it began to get a little bit routine, Yeah, uh, him defending the title just in the way he did it. Right. So pretty Tony Pettis returns this past weekend also at UFC 181, Ben, and I think reminded us what he's capable of uh, after so so much time off with, with injury. If anything, maybe if you can even say this about a two-round fight, I felt like this was kind of a fight where both guys came out of it looking okay. I didn't feel like Gilbert Melendez came out of this looking like he was about to be the champion, but like for a round and a half, he was doing pretty damn good against Anthony Pettis, kind of uh, using his pressure and 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 uh, uh, disrupting Pettis's rhythm maybe a little bit, and also pushing him up against the fence and and uh, utilizing that clinch game and the and the grappling skills that uh, Gilbert Melendez is known for, and kind of turning it into what we thought would be the kind of fight he would have to have to be successful against Anthony Pettis, kind of a long, dirty grind. Uh, and then Anthony Pettis hits him and. Gilbert Melendez gets a little bit discombobulated and a couple seconds later, you just lost the first fight in your career by submission, which, uh, I think just underscores how impressive Anthony Pettis can be, uh, 
when when he's healthy and right and out there doing it. And I guess moving forward, you just hope he can stay that way all the time. Yeah. You know, this was one where I think it's got to be kind of depressing for other UFC lightweights. Because if you'd asked people before, how do you beat Anthony Pettis, right? People would say, like, kind of use that Clay Guida model. Like, pressure him, like you said, wear him down, get him moving backwards, get him in a defensive mode. Don't let him start chopping away with those kicks and, and marching forward. Uh, and firing off those combos. Like, just don't let him get comfortable in his offense. Uh, keep him on the defensive, uh, and, you know, kind of try to exploit his wrestling. And Gilbert Melendez was doing that and doing it about as well as you could do it and still didn't work. You know, all it takes is, you know, he lands one good punch on you and then a momentary lapse in your submission defense and he's got you. And, like, that's guy that is, that's hard to figure out how to beat that guy. If yeah, he's, that well, he's good doing on... that to Gilbert Melendez. Yeah. Hell yeah, it is. Well, and then it makes you think like, okay, I guess what you have to do is do the things that he is really good at better than him, which is then becomes like, how do you beat Anthony Pettis? Be better than Anthony Pettis. Thanks a lot, coach. Thanks. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah, and in some ways, I feel like this, like I said, reminded us not only what Anthony Pettis is capable of, but like when you see him on the Wheaties box and you see him in the pre-fight interviews uh, and then a little bit in the post-fight interviews, it, you really do come away from this event feeling like uh, I know we always make fun of Dana White for constantly like updating his pound for pound rankings, depending on who's fighting this weekend. But like he said before this event that he thought all Anthony Pettis needed to do to become one of the pound for pound best in the world was stay healthy. And I think after this fight, uh, I'm inclined to agree with that. I feel like if he is able to stay healthy, this kid really does have the potential to become that one of the breakout stars that the UFC needs so badly right now. Yeah. You know, and you think about all the things that all the different things that he brings and the only thing people can complain about is that we don't get to see him bring them often enough but i don't know i mean do you see the the interesting confrontation uh in in, in a way that he had with nermy your boy could be nermigamedov yeah i think it opens up the question of what's next for anthony pettis and i don't think anybody would would complain if if you throw him out there with habib nermigamedov because right. You know, he's a guy that brings some Gilbert Melendez style qualities to the fight and just like durability and grappling skills and, and ability to just kind of go out there and grind on guys. Uh, but we haven't seen anybody in the case of Nurmagomedov who's been able to stand up to it yet. So right. I feel like that's an interesting fight and, and an interesting matchup. And it is also interesting that, you know, you like to see a guy like, uh, Nurmi willing to show up to the press conference and be shouting out questions from the periphery to, to kind of get up in Anthony Pettis' face, even though it kind of backfires when you're like, Hey, Man, I, I, I ready to fight March, April, May. I ready to fight whenever you tell me. I give me my shot. I'll, I'll fight you. And Anthony Pettis is like, are you listening, dude? I already said yes. Yes. <laughs> well, fine. We'll do that. Like, what are you shouting about at this point? It's kind of awesome. It is awesome. I feel like, uh, Nurmagomedov might be in a stealth way, kind of an awesome dude. Yeah. Absolutely. On to new business, man. Uh, this weekend we got a double bill, the tough 20 finale and uh, UFC on Fox 13. Let's start talking a little bit about Nate Diaz, who is frankly putting on a tour de force of what it means to be a Diaz brother uh, during the run up to his co-main event bout, which is on Saturday night against Rafael Dos Anjos. First, he sleeps through the open workouts, which is how you get started on fight week if you're a Diaz brother. Mm -hmm. uh, then he, he, as soon as he makes contact with the media, uh, 
He claims that a tweet he sent out earlier on December 2nd uh, that appeared to voice his displeasure with the new UFC uniform deal with Reebok uh, was one that he did not write, that his that his phone was hacked, which is yes. there's a delicious irony in that. Uh, once you consider how Nate Diaz responded a few months ago when Josh Thompson said that his phone got hacked, uh, which was basically stop being a pussy and admit what you did. Uh, but I love that he's doing it because you know that he's not even doing it like expecting you to believe it. He's doing it to throw it in your face. It's like, oh, this is the out, right? This is the out whenever anybody says something like that they they don't want to stand behind. I'll just, oh, no, my phone was hacked. Right. And that fuck you all. You can't do anything about it. And that's awesome. And the most amazing thing about it, Ben, is that that tweet is still there. Yeah. (laughs) He has not deleted that tweet that he said he didn't write. It's still right there on his timeline. Yeah. Here's for your bitch ass uniforms. Fuck you. Now, at this point, the only thing a hacker could really do is hack into his account and apologize. Right. That's one of the amazing things about this. And one of the most amazing things about most uh, UFC, I got hacked arguments uh, is that uh, so a dude hacked Nate Diaz's Twitter and posted a thing that Nate Diaz believes. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. And Nate Diaz didn't stop there either. Uh, he went on to cut a pretty rad promo on the, the UFC signing CM Punk uh, and also had some stuff to say to ESPN's Brett Okamoto this week uh, that made it kind of sound like uh, and I have a, I have a story on this up on Bleacher Report right now, like kind of made it sound like, uh, every one of these Diaz appearances in the UFC needs to be cherished because, um, I'm starting to get, well, I'm not starting to get the impression. I guess you would have had this impression a couple years ago, but like maybe these guys aren't going to be around that much longer. Cause if, you know, if you read the quote that he gave to Brad Okamoto, it was sort of like, I don't even know why I'm here. Like, uh, I don't get paid very much for this. I work really hard at it. And when I say I want to make more money, I just get trashed and dragged through the mud. And I don't think I'm ever going to get back what I put in. And as I stay in, stay in it longer, it's just going to become worse for me. So why am I doing it? Yeah. Well, and I think that some of his comments about CM Punk, where he was basically just like, you know, first of all, you say that I'm not a needle mover, but shit, you know, you fucking need me. Like, you know, you're going to, I can lose this fight and you're still going to put me on a main card somewhere because you need me because people know who I am and they care about me and everybody else is just a bunch of new guys that nobody knows. Like, that's for one thing, uh, an astute observation of the, the state of the UFC right now also suggests maybe Nate Diaz has either been reading your columns or listening to the CME. Uh, I'd like to think both. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of yeah, course. I mean, I would be surprised if you weren't. Uh, yeah, when he's out there on a bike ride, he got the earbuds in. You might as well listen to the CME. <laughs> uh, but also, when and he was talking about CM Punk, and he's like, you know, it, it devalues the rest of us because here I am working my ass off to get to this point to be in here. And then some guy who has no business here, who, who hasn't done anything to show that that he belongs here and that he is on the same level as the rest of us. He gets to come in and make more money probably than, than all of us. Uh, and that is bullshit. And man, yeah, like when you put it that way, like especially for all the people who are being like, hey, shut up about CM Punk. It's good business. You're all a bunch of haters. And you're like, yeah, unless you're Nate Diaz. And then you have every right to be pissed off about that because the USC is telling you they can't afford to pay you more. You know, you're not a needle mover kind of thing. And yet then, you know, you show up here in Phoenix, sleep through the one media opportunity, and still you're the most talked about person going into the fight. You're not even the main event. Yeah, and let's not overlook his use of the pra- of the phrase puny fucking virgin nose <laughs> when describing CM Punk's appearance, which is an awesome commentary on the Diaz brothers to say that they will look at you and judge you wanting because you appear that you have never been punched in your nose before. Yeah, like your lack of scar tissue 
makes you less than somehow. And, you know, we've said this about Nick and Nate Diaz before, but I think it bears repeating right now. And, and that's that, uh, you know, you can tell that they're not particularly polished speakers that they, that, that they, you know, uh, they, they have a tendency to ramble a lot and, and, you know, use 20 words when maybe five would do. But at the same time, if you were able to like distill the commentary and get down through all the quirks, uh, and stuff like that, like these guys, a lot of the times make solid points. Like Absolutely. they're, they're right most of the time. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, and that's the thing too is what are you going to do, uh, about Nate Diaz if you're the UFC, right? Because obviously you're not pleased with him. Right. Like he's saying, fuck your uniforms. He's saying, fuck your, your new, uh, high profile signing. You need me. You don't have anybody else like me. You have a bunch of new guys who nobody cares about. Um, but he's kind of right. So what do you do? Like, if he loses this fight, do you cut him? Are you looking for an opportunity to cut him? Shit, man, Bellator wishes you would cut a motherfucker like That's Nate right. Diaz. You know who else wishes? Nate Diaz <laughs> wishes that you would. Uh, well, he, he, and this is an interesting conversation. We had this, uh, a little while ago in private a few days ago. And, and that is that, like, as it pertains to the uniform thing, like, I, you know, I don't think that the UFC purposefully wants to stomp on fighter individuality and self-expression and stuff like that. But I do wonder if they fully reconciled with how many tough and stubborn guys are on this roster who will simply balk at the idea that they are going to be told what they can and can't wear. Right, who will just look for opportunities to kind of buck the system there. Right, because you would think in a perfect world, a guy like Nate Diaz and a guy like Nick Diaz would be guys that could really profit a lot from this idea that Reebok might produce signature personalized lines of apparel for for fighters because like if Reebok made a rad 209 shirt, I think lots of people would buy it. Uh, but at the same time, like you can totally see the idea that they can't wear with well, a, a they might lose a lot of money by not being able to wear metal militia hoodies to the cage yeah. anymore. Also, and, does Reebok make jeans? Right. <laughs> jeans and, and work boots. And, and B, just the simple fact that that in their view, the guy who owns this company is going to tell them what shirt they can't wear. Like you could see guys like the Diaz brothers taking that relatively small issue and kind of turning it into a deal breaker, right? Like you wouldn't be surprised if later on they walked away from this company and as part of it were like, and then man, they tried to fucking tell me what shirt to wear. Like that would very much be in keeping with what we know about their mindset. Yeah. Right. I just had a kind of a, a genius idea here. So the UFC tells you, you can't wear any other stuff. You got to wear this, you know, before you go out, here's your Reebok shorts. Here's your Reebok hat. Here's your Reebok t-shirt. Now you got to have some shorts to go out there, but What's to stop you from just walking out, if you want to make a statement, walking out when you hit the arena, no shirt, no hat, none of the, the other stuff, to clearly you know, make the point, like coming out bare-chested, stripped to the waist, as you like to say, to make the point like, all right, I may not be able to, to make money uh, promoting this, this other stuff that I want, but I don't have to help you sell this stuff that you want. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're, getting, if you're getting a certain base pay just based on uh, the rankings, and if your other stuff comes on like merchandise sales, which hey, maybe you'll make and maybe you won't. Fuck it, man. That's Reebok's problem. That's Reebok and the UFC's problem. But them sell the stuff. It takes away the some of the incentive there for the fighter to feel like he has to help out the sponsors. I yeah. think that would be an awesome Diaz move. Right. That would be the. Are they going to the, send poor Burt Watson back there to try to make you put a shirt on, like during like, the pay per view? Put the shirt on, and maybe as soon as you walk out, you take the shirt off and throw it down uh, before anybody can really get a good look at it. That is the the apparel equivalent of the double birds. Right. And not that we want to, uh, you know, belabor the point, but like one of the other things I've been thinking about Reebok wise, and this is probably a very small thing, but like athletes are such creatures of habit, man. Like 
it's going to be kind of a bummer for a dude. Like if you have athletic shoes that you like to wear, if you have fight shorts that you like to wear, if you have like some kind of warm up outfit that you like to wear, it's going to be kind of a bummer to show up at the UFC and, and like have to wear all this Reebok stuff, especially like if it's not high quality. Like I yeah. think that's going to become an issue. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other thing is you've got guys like, like Nate Diaz and stuff on the roster who will, who aren't afraid and will speak out like, They'll let people know if they have questions about the quality and that, you know, people will take that and run with it and that won't be good for anybody. Right. I saw he made sure and he tweeted out the link to all of his dethroned walkout gear this nice. week. So, but that's see, that's another effect that this thing is going to have on fighters. And that's something a lot of people talked about in my story about it was that the fighters who can actually motivate people outside their, of their UFC exposure, who have a value and like who can tell people something on social media, or people care about them other than just on the very night when they're fighting guys like Nate Diaz, those guys are still going to do okay with sponsors, might even do better because their value just went up. Like you have to have one of those guys if you want to be in the MMA space as like an apparel company. However, there's not that many of those guys. And so it's going to be concentrated. Uh, that money kind of flows to a few select individuals and leaves everybody else out. Right. Uh, and then just fight-wise, I think to my previous point of are we are we starting to see the end of, of – the 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 days of Planet Diaz in the octagon, uh, pretty tough draw I think for Nate Diaz against Rafael dos Anjos this weekend, coming in off 13 months of inactivity when he was out on his contract holdout. If he loses this one, he'll be one and three in his last UFC fights. Then you got Nick Diaz fighting Anderson Silva in January. If he loses that, he'll be zero and three in his last three UFC fights. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of issues at foot in Camp Diaz right now. It's going to be interesting to see the way it plays out. Let's talk a little bit about the tough 20 finale, Ben. Who's in this fight? That would be uh, Rose Namajunas and Carla Esparza okay, for the Ro- for the first UFC women's strawweight title. Rose, I was I I knew she was in it. She's getting a lot of pub. Uh, she you have to you have to assume that when Dana White came out earlier during the season and said that there was a Ronda Rousey on the Tough Twenty cast that he meant uh, Rose Namajunas, who's like what twenty one, twenty two years old, young young very, athlete, very young. Only like her official MMA record, you know, not counting the the tough bouts, which are technically exhibition bouts. Uh, she's only two and one. Uh, she's she's twenty two, by the way. Um, and last I checked, she's going off as the betting favorite, right? Yeah. Coming into this fight against Carla Esparza. Well, I don't know if you saw her throughout the tournament. I mean, she's just snatching up submissions on people and not even making it look too close. Right. Yeah. No. I. I. Uh, did we talk about this on the air that I never came back after we, they took the break for the we baseball did. playoffs? We did. Yeah. I was really excited about Tough Twenty. I thought it was going to be awesome. Uh, could have been a groundbreaking season, and then we got a few episodes in, and I was like, oh, no, it's actually just a, a, a season of The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. And then they took the break for the baseball playoffs, and I just never I never got back. I never made it back. Yeah. Well, and they also got really bogged down in issues of you know people bullying other people and mistreating other people in the house, um, which – you know, I get that for reality TV producers, they're like, yeah, this is the kind of drama that really gets viewers. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe for one of those Bravo shows. But A, at this point, we've all seen that reality show so many times that it doesn't really move us anymore. And B, kind of doesn't seem that good for that division or those people who the UFC needs us to care about after that point. You know, I mean, I don't, it seems like kind of a short term gain kind of deal, especially like you see that little show they did after the last episode of tough. And it's like, you got the whole appeal of this season was that you had for a change, the best 115 pounders, you had the best people in that division and they were all going to compete for a meaningful uh, stakes at the end, rather than having a bunch of no name people try to get us to, to learn who they are. Uh, and instead, you know, what do they talk about at the end of the show? Like, you know, who, who was the worst person to live with, basically? Like the the 
interpersonal drama in the house, which doesn't really matter that much anymore because they're never going to have to live in this artificial environment again. Now they get to go home to their training camps and just actually fight. Kind of seems like the focus is in the wrong place. Uh, who, who, who takes this? Is, Carla Esparza is the, is the more established, more uh, experienced MMA fighter, right? But, but like you said, I'll take your word for it. Uh, Rose Namajunas looked pretty good during the tournament. Right. I mean, experience is the best thing that Asparza has going for her here. Um, but I still, if, if you ask me to pick, I still take Namajunas. I, I, you know, I got a story. Here's a shameless plug. Got a story on uh, MMA Junkie and then USA Today this week. I talked to Pat Barry a lot about Rose um, and about, you know, at least how early he claims to have noticed that she could be, you know, one of the great talents in this sport. That right away training with her and he was just kind of like, hold up. Are you serious about this? Like, do you really want to do this? Because if you do tell me that you're serious about it, um, I'll do all that other stuff for you. Like, I think he said, you'll never have to work and take out the garbage and all that shit. Pat's going to take care of that because you're good enough at this that you should just focus on this. And I thought it was a really interesting, uh, not only interesting from like a professional sports aspect, but interesting just uh, this is something, you know, my wife and I and some friends of ours have been talking about a lot, a lot that that gender dynamics in a relationship, how often it turns out that like the man is the default kind of like, well, his career gets put first and then the woman's career kind of gets put on the back burner. Uh, and then here's one where Pat Berry realized, okay, she has the more, she has the higher earning potential. Um, so if one of us in this couple has to kind of step back from this career so that the other one can, can devote themselves entirely to it, it should be me stepping back and her going forward. And, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's interesting to see. I mean, he did not have that problem, like some ego problem, uh, with some kind of, you know, male identity to keep him from doing that. He just realized like economically, that's the smarter thing. She has the higher ceiling right now. Pat Berry smashing stereotypes. That's right. Realizing it's not the fifties. That's right. Good job. Pat, Pat. Berry just high kick in the fifties in the head. Three heavyweight fights, Ben on tap at UFC on Fox 13. You got your Gabriel Gonzaga versus your Matt Mitrione. Anything could happen in that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, including any number of different kinds of weird facial hair. That's right. Uh, any number of different knockout combinations or just boring as shit. That could happen too. Then you got Alistair Overeem versus Stefan Struve, uh, two guys that kind of desperately need wins. Um, but let's talk about the main event just to make sure we get that in there. Junior Dos Santos against Stipe Miocic. Stipe! Uh, this is another one of those weird fights where because of the kind of, uh, always stagnant, uh, heavyweight title picture because Cain Velasquez can't stay healthy or somebody gets diverticulitis or somebody gets hit by a damn car while they're out riding their motorcycle. Uh, this is one of those fights that in a perfect world or even a normal division would probably be uh, a title eliminator given that you got like your number two rated contender against your number four rated contender. But at this point, like we think we're going to wait for Cain Velasquez to try to get healthy and then put him uh, in the cage with the go horse Fab Verdum sometime early next year, hopefully in Mexico City. Uh, so it seems like neither Junior Dos Santos nor Stipe Miocic will Stipe. end up being an immediate number one contender here. I guess for Junior Dos Santos, you want to go out there and prove that you're still number one, two, or three in the world, that you should still be alongside Velasquez and Verdum in the conversation. And if you're Miocic, you want to prove that uh, you have what it takes to beat a, a top five heavyweight. You know, I think for... Uh for Stipe, Stipe, I think that this is about more than just winning. I think this is one where, like, if he wants to really uh, jump up there and be considered, uh, he needs to to fight 
a little more aggressively in this one rather than kind of trying to like outpoint people um, and box from a distance kind of thing. Uh, Like if he goes out there and knocks out a guy like Junior Dos Santos or finishes him somehow, like then suddenly everybody goes, whoa, this like let's let's recalibrate what we thought the potential future for the heavyweight division looked like. Um, If he goes out there, you know, and, and ekes out a decision. Uh, you know, trying not to get into any you know, huge, dangerous striking exchanges with a, a heavy hitter like like JDS, then I think people go, "All right, well, we feel like that that does more to drop Dos Santos down than it does to elevate you." Yeah, and I guess that you take a look at a guy like uh, Stipe Miocic, and you think that he's the kind of guy that the heavyweight division kind of needs or would like to have as a top contender. Not that Junior isn't. I think Junior's also likable and the sort of guy that you want to be in and around the title conversation all the time. But you know, like Miocic is is relatively young for this division. I think he's thirty one or thirty two years old. Uh, you know, he's he's. Uh, uh, an entertaining guy, kind of like kind of an engaging guy, uh, uh, from Cleveland and, uh, and certainly a good athlete. And when he wants to do it, I think is a guy who has good all around skills. So he could be a guy that could be kind of an interesting contender if, if he's able to get by Dos Santos. I think that the UFC heavyweight division needs a lot more of those guys. Uh, I, I did look at the odds earlier this week and I think Ju- Junior Dos Santos was something like three to one favorite. Uh, if he wins, uh, it seems like a gimme to me that you put him in a fight with Travis Brown, who just beat Brendan Schaub last weekend at UFC 181. Uh, if Miocic wins, I think you have a couple more, uh, options. Like, I don't think anyone would argue with Miocic against Travis Brown. I think that sounds pretty fun, but I also think, uh, I wouldn't complain at least about the idea of Stipe Miocic fighting, uh, a suddenly resurgent Todd Duffy, who just went out there and, and pounded out Anthony Hamilton in 33 seconds. Now that, my friend, is an interesting suggestion. Just putting on my matchmaker hat. Yeah. Doing doing the damn thing I like over it. here. I like what you're doing. Uh is there anything else you wanted to say about, about UFC on Fox thirteen or or do you want to squeeze in an odd listener mail question or two? Um the only thing I wanted to do was to read this quote from Nate Diaz offered without comment. Okay. If I want to, I can't go play in the NBA. Not even Stefan Strews, big ass. He can't go play in the NBA if he wants to because he feels like making a change for a publicity thing. They wouldn't pay him no money. They wouldn't even let him play. It's ridiculous. Go on. Hashtag, are you fucking kidding me, right? <laughs> Just closing out the show like we always do. Um, I guess we could do a couple of listener mail questions. This one comes from Jeff Reining. He writes, Josh S- Salmon? Josh Simon? How do we say this? I think it's Simon. Simon. Josh Simon, fellas. On a fight card with plenty of stories and many big names, I sit here looking back on the card that was UFC 181. As awesome of it as it was to see Pretty Tony do the damn thing and Robbie Lawler claim the welterweight championship, the primary moment I keep thinking about was Josh Simon kicking Eddie Gordon's face off, raising his arms before Gordon even hit the ground, and then going to the camera and dedicating it all to his late girlfriend. Please discuss the emotional adventure that Saman faced going into this fight and how awesome it was seeing him come out on top. It certainly was a highlight reel moment right there. It was, and it especially was more of a a memorable moment if you knew the backstory going into it, that you know this was the his girlfriend's, would have been, I believe, her 24th birthday. Um, She died in a car accident while texting with him. Uh, something that he obviously felt a, a lot of guilt uh, about. Um, and he came back, chose this date to come back uh, for his first fight since she had died, uh, you know, because he wanted to kind of kind of deal with that and go out there, win via highlight reel, head kick, um, such a huge emotional moment. He came back in the back afterwards and talked to us all and just seems like a really awesome, genuine dude. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those moments where you just – 
you're glad you get to feel good for somebody. From David Hassan, he writes, I saw, I watched the UFC 182 promo during UFC 181 and I thought it was awesome. I was surprised by others' reactions to it. Is it the UFC's job to make their champs look like nice guys or to make us excited to see their champs fight? I assume he's talking about the awesome Daniel Cormier, John Jones promo, right. which makes liberal use of their, uh, onstage brawl and their, uh, quote unquote off air exchange when they both went on ESPN, the famous are you still there, pussy? <laughs> moment. Uh, it is an awesome promo. It does make you excited for the fight. Uh, this is a chance to be one of the greats, I think, in UFC history. Kind of the perfect storm. Two undefeated light heavyweights, both who could potentially be the best in the world, both who seem to legitimately like not like each other, and both who are pretty special talents all the way around. Um, so yeah, awesome promo, awesome fight. Uh, a little bit of double dealing from the fight company to to I believe find both guys for their onstage fight, talk about how terrible it was for the sport and then be like, check out our awesome promo of this brawl that happened on stage. Well I think it was the commission that fined them. But yeah, the UFC uh you know had to do the thing like, oh we never want to see that. That's awful. We don't ever want to see that again. And then to not only make great use of that footage, but then the other kind of supposedly leaked footage that we're then, you know, gonna go ahead and show uh, extensively. And I mean, I think that what, what he's referring to here is that it, it seems to make John Jones look pretty bad. Uh, but I don't know. I don't really have a, a problem with that so much because if you're making him look bad using stuff he did, he can't really complain too much. Right. Plus the, the attempt by John Jones, of course, to be like humble choir boy hero champion. Clearly that's not working. Right. Like that's yeah. not going you to work. You got to go so, with what's there, man. Yeah. And this is, what, the Sith. this this is what's there. It was an awesome promo. I got no complaints really. Uh, from Cesar Fernandez, Uriah Faber pokes Francisco Rivera in the eye and immediately after submits him. After everybody has seen the replay from every angle a dozen times, we go ahead and declare Faber the winner. What the fuck ever discuss. Always cheat, baby. Yeah. Always cheat. Even if you don't mean to. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's kind of, it's, I'm not going to blame Faber for it. And I think he was just reacting in the moment and all that right. stuff. Guys got to stop putting their fingers out there though, man. They do. I mean, I guess they don't got to since it's no. a pretty effective technique. They absolutely but. do not got to. Uh, that's the one thing that the MMA rules and officiating, uh, keeps telling us. We, we, we got to make them maybe. Uh, that's it. I didn't, I didn't pick out any more listener mail questions. So I'm fine with that. This has right. been an exhausting free for all. This this was a good free-for-all, though. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every second of it. And who knows? Maybe someday we'll do a free-for-all in the future where we won't even need the excuse that we fucked up the uh, recording dates. Good news, though. We'll be back again on Monday, right? Oh, We're God. coming back in like three days. We'll be right back <laughs> on this thing. we got to get back on the normal schedule so people stop bothering us on Twitter. Yeah. You know, you miss one episode of the Co-Main Event podcast and people start acting like you're never going to do it again. Um, right? We kind of missed like two like, episodes. Did you but... quit? Is like people, people are literally asking us, did you quit? Did you stop doing the podcast? Well, but then the flip side is how depressing would it be for us if we skipped it and nobody noticed? Yeah, true, true. So keep those cards and leather letters coming. <laughs> yes. Kids. Anyway, we'll be back next week to tell you what happened at UFC 181. Uh, and, but for right now, that we're done. We're through. We're out. I was going to say, I guess there's a World Series of Fighting card too that we didn't even talk about, right? John Fitch is going to fight. Who's smart, Paul Hart? That's right. Well, we're talking about it right now. I feel like we've kind of cooled on that. It seemed like it was going to be an awesome fight.